Well, good morning once again. Um, as always, it is a great privilege and an honor to be able to worship with you and to have the opportunity to preach the Word of God, which is able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus and to equip you for every good work. This time I would like to, uh, to apologize. I'm still a young pastor and I'm still learning. Um, I apologize for not writing a card uh, to you and expressing my thanksgiving. But at this time, I would like to say I am very thankful for you. Uh, I love you, and I'm thankful for your love uh, to me and to my wife. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be picking back up in our consecutive exposition of the Gospel of Mark. And our text today will be Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And as you are turning there, I want to begin by saying that the Gospel of Mark has a very special place in my heart. Pastor Thomas, you probably don't remember this, but when I first visited Emmanuel Baptist Church nearly 15 years ago, um, I did not have a Bible. And someone at the church saw me looking at a Bible on the book table, and they told me that I could have it. And so then I went to Pastor Thomas and I asked for his advice on how to start reading the Bible. And he told me, I would advise you to begin by reading the Gospel of Mark. And so I took my Bible home, and I started reading in the Gospel of Mark. And as I read through Mark, I can remember very vividly having a similar experience to the men who walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. As I read through this compact and vivid and rapid account of the life and ministry of Jesus, my heart burned within me. Because as I read about this man named Jesus, about his miraculous works, about his authoritative teaching and preaching, about his masculine strength that, that he exhibited when he, when he was confronted by his enemies, about his wisdom that confounded those enemies, about his tender compassion that he showed to sinners and to those oppressed spiritually and physically, about his sweet communion with the Father, and about his relentless pursuit to accomplish the work that he came to do, which was to save his people from their sins. The only conclusion that I could come to was that truly this man was who he said he was. He was the Son of God. Now, I'm not sure if I was converted while reading the Gospel of Mark. It is possible that I was. But I do know that within a very short time after reading the Gospel of Mark, I was trusting in Christ and that I had assurance that I had been brought into a saving relationship with him. And so, yes, this book has a very special place in my heart. And thus, I am humbled and honored to have the opportunity to preach from this wonderful book that God used to make me wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, as was stated, our text for today from this wonderful book is the first 12 verses of chapter number two, and the title of our sermon is Jesus Heals a Paralytic. Let's read our text together. This is God's word. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your, sons are your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Well, thus the reading of God's word, and his people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we consider his word this morning. Holy Father, as we have recently confessed as a congregation, we believe that in your holy word you have sufficiently revealed the only way that we might be saved. And further, you have revealed very clearly the way in which we are to live so as to be pleasing in your sight. And yet, Lord, we also confess that apart from the inward illumination of your spirit, that we would not be able to savingly understand nor to obey that which has been revealed in your word. And so we come now as those who are needy, as those who are dependent upon you. Lord, would you open our eyes to clearly see the Lord Jesus Christ? And would you give us the strength to get up and to follow him all the days of our lives? Would you please grant us repentance and give us the gift of faith. Would you please have mercy upon us, just as you had mercy on that paralytic man nearly 2,000 years ago. Father, would you do this for our good and for the glory of your Son, in whose name we humbly pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we begin our exposition of this passage, I want to go ahead and alert you to a transition that is taking place as we move into the second chapter of Mark. In chapter 1, although Jesus faces intense opposition from Satan, and although he does come into conflict with the kingdom of darkness by casting out demons, we do not yet see in Mark's account opposition to Jesus at the human level. We saw that in the first chapter of Mark, what was happening was that Jesus' fame was rapidly increasing among the people in the Galilean region. Now, I am aware that when you read Matthew and Luke, that you will notice that he does face some opposition at the human level prior to the account of the healing of the paralytic. But in Mark's account, we see no opposition at the human level until we move into chapter 2. And what you will notice is that the opposition that, opposition that Jesus begins to face in chapter 2 of Mark is particularly opposition from the religious elites of Judaism, which are identified in this passage as the scribes, and in other places they will be identified as the Pharisees or the Sadducees, and sometimes simply as the Jews. And you will notice that this opposition has a very subtle beginning, but it doesn't stay that way very long. It quickly intensifies. If you would notice in our passage in verse number 6, it says that the scribes were questioning in their hearts. And so at this point, the opposition that Jesus is facing has not even reached the level of being verbal opposition but the opposition is in the secret chambers of the heart. Now, there is a warning there for us. I don't know everyone's condition in this room. You may not be a person who is verbally opposed to Christ and his people. You may not be a person who is physically hostile to Christ and his people, 
but you may very well be a person who in the secret chambers of your heart, you have no love for Christ. You have no affection for him. And thus, when you are presented with the kingship of Jesus, with the reality that King Jesus has authority over you, and that he demands that you live your life the way he says to live it, your heart turns against him. And you question in your heart, who is this Jesus that would dare tell me how to live my life? If that is you this morning, I plead with you, do not go to war against Christ. You will lose. But remember, he came to seek and to save sinners. And therefore, if you would humble yourselves and approach Christ on his terms, he will be gracious to you and he will forgive you and he will welcome you into the family of God. But as we move forward in chapter 2 of Mark, you will notice that the scribe's opposition doesn't stay silent very long. In verse 16 of chapter 2, you see that their opposition becomes verbal. When they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then later in chapter 2, verse 24, we see the Pharisees ramp up their verbal opposition by accusing Jesus to his face of allowing his disciples to break the law of God. And then by the time the narrative moves into chapter 3, verse 6, you will notice that the opposition of the Pharisees quickly has progressed to the level of conspiring to destroy, that is, to kill Jesus Christ. It says in that verse, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him about how to destroy him. Now, I wanted to point that out to you because that will be a reoccurring theme throughout this gospel account that you need to be aware of. And that is to be expected because if you remember, what did Jesus say in verse 15 of chapter 1? He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so as Jesus is beginning his public ministry, we have King Jesus ushering in the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of light. And as the kingdom of light confronts the kingdom of darkness, there is going to be opposition. But as we will see in this wonderful book, the kingdom of light has come into the world and the kingdom of darkness has not overcome it. For King Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And in fact, he has the authority, as we have read in our passage, to overcome our greatest enemy, which is, of course, sin. And you may say, well, I thought death was our greatest enemy. But remember what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. It says the sting of death is sin. The Bible teaches us that death is the wages of sin. In other words, death is an, is an effect, but sin is the root cause. And so as we will see in our passage, sin is our greatest problem, and thus our great need is forgiveness. Well, let's begin by taking a closer look at our passage by walking through it verse by verse to see what the Lord would say to us today from his word. Let's notice once again verse number one. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So in this verse, we have the geographical context or the geographical setting of our passage. It says, and when he returned. If you remember back in chapter one from verses 21 through 34, Jesus was in Capernaum. And it was here that he was teaching and casting out demons and healing many who were sick and oppressed. 
But then in verses 35 through the end of chapter 1, we see that Jesus leaves Capernaum and that he embarks on a ministry tour throughout the whole region of Galilee. We aren't told how long he was on this tour, we aren't, but we are told that his fame grew significantly during this ministry tour, such that he could no longer openly enter a town, but had to minister out in desolate places. It had gotten to a point where he could no longer walk freely in the town centers because he would be swarmed by people who were seeking to hear him teach and to see him perform miracles. And so in verse 1 of chapter 2, it is after this successful ministry tour that Jesus returns to Capernaum. Further in this verse, we are told that Capernaum was considered the home of Jesus. It says it was reported that he was at home. Now, we know, of course, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and that later, while he was still a young child, he moved to Egypt with his family to escape the murderous plan of Herod. And then after some time in Egypt, Jesus returned with his family but instead of going back to Bethlehem, the family of Jesus settled in Nazareth. And it is in Nazareth where Jesus would have spent the majority of his life. But as Jesus has begun his public ministry, he has relocated to the little town of Capernaum, which has become his home base, as it were. And this was apparently known to the people who lived in Capernaum. They knew where he lived. And so the town which had already witnessed the authoritative teaching and the miraculous works of Christ, as noted in chapter 1, when they heard that he was back home, they quickly began to assemble at his home. In fact, from the parallel account in Luke, we read that in addition to the people of Capernaum coming to see Jesus, that there were also Pharisees and teachers of the law that traveled to see Jesus from as far away as Jerusalem, which would have been roughly 85 miles away. And so apparently there were many people that traveled for several days to Capernaum upon hearing that Jesus was back at home. Then we move to verse number two. And it says, And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Well, the first thing we notice here is the sheer number of people that came to see and to hear Jesus. Matthew Henry, Matthew Henry, commenting on this particular verse, writes the following. He says, Where the king is, there the court is. Where Shiloh is, there shall the gathering of the people be. He goes on to say, In improving opportunities for our souls, we must take care not to lose time. And what Henry meant by that was this. These people knew that Jesus was going to be at the synagogue on the Sabbath, but they could not wait. They had to go see Jesus now. Continuing with Henry, he says, One invited another, Come, let us go see Jesus, so that this house could not contain the visitors. There was no room to receive them because they were so numerous. A blessed sight to see people thus flying like a cloud to Christ's house. End quote. Dear ones, this is the Lord's day, and this is the Lord's house. And it is in the gathering of God's people for public worship that Christ has promised to meet with us in a special way week after week after week. Brothers and sisters, we should be excited to come and to meet with Jesus on the Lord's Day, to worship Him, to commune with Him, and to receive from His hand all the benefits that accompany being united to Him by faith. I'm reminded of the hymn that we just sang in our worship, How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors. 
Well, as we move forward, we see that this large crowd was gathered. And then it says, and he was preaching the word to them. Although much of Christ's ministry involves signs and wonders and miraculous healings and even the raising of the dead, what we see time and time again is that Christ came primarily to preach the gospel. We saw that in verse 15 of chapter 1 where it says, He came into Galilee doing what? Proclaiming the gospel. And then in verse 38 of chapter 1, Jesus says, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And so as we move into chapter 2, we see Jesus preaching the word. The word became flesh and he came preaching the word. I love that imagery. The word came preaching the word. And it must have been wonderful to hear Jesus preach. You see, when we preach, what, what do we do? We say, don't look at me, look to Jesus, look to Christ and live. But when Jesus preached, what did he say? He said, look to me, come unto me and live. And so it must have been wonderful to hear him preach. I love how William Hendrickson comments on this verse. He says, Jesus was preaching the gospel to this audience. Words of grace, clear and simple, were falling from his lips. Dear ones, Jesus teaches us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The Father, speaking of Christ, says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And so the question is this, Have you heard the voice of Christ in the preaching of the word? He says, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And so would you obey His voice today and follow Him? And so from this verse we learn of the primacy of the preaching of the gospel. For our great need is to hear the voice of Christ speaking to us in the preaching of his word. And so now we move to verse number three. And I love how the ESV renders the beginning of this verse. And they came. There is this massive crowd and Jesus is preaching the gospel. And then there is a disruption. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, in Mark's account, he gives us a detail that Matthew and Luke do not mention. Mark tells us that four men were carrying the paralytic. Now, I tend to think that there were more than just the four men. I believe the they in this passage is referring to a larger group, but within that larger group, you had four men who were holding the four corners of the bed on which the paralytic lay. But either way, there was at least four men bringing this paralytic. And so this verse teaches us two very important lessons. First, it teaches us the blessing of community. And secondly, it teaches us the moral inability of man as illustrated by paralysis. First, the blessing of community. Brothers and sisters, e even that statement that I just referenced to you presupposes community. You see, we have been created by, we, we have been created for community. The Bible says that it is not good for man to be alone. We are not created to walk this pilgrimage by ourselves. No, we need one another. We, and we are called to love one another, to serve one another, and to bear one another's burdens. In short, we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so here in verse 3, we see a beautiful picture of community as this group was helping their friend who was in desperate need. 
And we'll speak more of that as we go forward. But the second lesson we see in this verse is this. We see the moral inability of man as illustrated by paralysis. It says they came bringing to him a paralytic. This time I would like to share with you another personal anecdote. The tragic consequences and nature of paralysis is something that I have witnessed firsthand. In 2009, my papa, who was 70 years old at the time, was in good health. He was a strong man. He was a very capable man. In fact, he was a man a couple of months shy of concluding a 40-year career working as a saw filer in a lumber mill. And he had big plans for his retirement years. He told us about these plans all the time. And because he, he had to work all the time. He worked six days a week. And he kept saying, when I, when I retire, we're going to do all kinds of stuff, talking to his grandsons. But those plans got radically changed. He was working on a cabinet in his kitchen, and he was on a ladder, and he went to come down off the ladder, and he missed a step. And he fell backwards, and his back landed on the corner of the island in the kitchen. This fall resulted in my papa breaking vertebrae both in his neck and in his back. He was life-flighted to the hospital, and there he received multiple surgeries to save his life. Thankfully, his life was spared, but the injuries left him partially paralyzed. He had some movement in his extremities, but the nerves were damaged, and he was left with virtually no strength. Thankfully, over time, he did regain some strength, mainly in his arms, but for the remaining 10 years of his life, he was relegated, relegated to the use of a wheelchair. But that first year after the injury was very rough. I, along with some other family members, would rotate spending the night with him and taking care of him because for that first year he was unable to do anything for himself. We had to feed him. We had to bathe him. We had to take him to the bathroom and, and help him. We had to put his clothes on for him. If he was cold, we had to put a blanket on him. When he got too hot, we had to take it off because he couldn't put the blanket on and off of himself. He couldn't move. So he couldn't even do little things like that. And I can remember very vividly the sadness and the depression that this caused in my papa. He went from being the provider, the leader, the protector, to being one who had to be cared for as if he was an infant. And I can remember a family member, not meaning any harm by it, was talking to my papa one day in sort of a, sort of a baby talk. I think he was trying to do some therapy. And they were trying to encourage him. They were talking to him as if he was a baby. And I can remember my, my papa saying, very sternly, please do not speak to me that way. Well, as I think about this paralytic that was carried to Jesus, we don't know much about this man. We aren't told his name. We don't know how old he was. We don't know how long he had been paralyzed, whether it was from birth or whether it was from an injury. We don't know if he was married or had children. We don't know really anything about this man other than the fact that he was a paralytic. It was this reality that dominated this man's life. He was a man that was completely dependent on others. He was one who suffered physically, but also one who would have suffered emotionally as he dealt with the humiliation and the indignation of not being able to care for himself. To put it plainly, he was a helpless and hopeless paralytic. He had no prospects of medical advancements that might be able to cure or reverse his condition. Nor did he have any access to 21st century medical advancements such as a motorized wheelchair that he could operate and have some level of independence. He was completely dependent on others. 
Well, it's not very difficult to see then that the physical condition of this man is a picture of the sinner's spiritual condition. The Bible is very clear that mankind in his natural state as a result of the imputed sin and guilt of Adam has lost all ability to bring himself into a right relationship with God. The scriptures, use, the scriptures use a whole host of metaphors to describe the helplessness and the hopelessness of the sinner to free himself from the bondage and the penalty of sin. We call this doctrine of the helplessness of man to free himself from sin the doctrine of total depravity. And at the heart of this depravity is the reality that in our fallen state that we are morally bankrupt. We are morally evil. The scriptures will say that no man is good, no, not one. It will say that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, and that even our attempts at righteousness are like filthy rags, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our confession of faith in chapter 9, paragraph 3, makes this very plain. It says, man by his fall into a state of sin has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. And so the Bible states with absolute certainty that on the one hand, mankind in his fallen state is morally wicked, and that this wickedness pervades all the faculties of man. There is no island of righteousness in man that is left unstained by sin. And because this is true, that leads to another truth on the other hand that the Bible makes absolutely certain. And that truth is that mankind is completely and utterly unable to change his corrupt nature. Can the leopard change his spots or the Ethiopian change his skin? No. And neither can the sinner change his nature. And so what an awful state the scriptures declare that the sinner is in. He is under the condemnation of God because of his sinful nature, and he is powerless to change that because his very nature is sinful. This is why Jesus will teach in the sixth chapter of John that no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. No one can come to Jesus unless they are carried. And so surely the imagery of a helpless and hopeless paralytic is an apt illustration of the condition of fallen men. Now, this leads us to the fourth verse, which states, and when, they could not, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Well, in this verse, we see something remarkable. The friends of this paralytic are not discouraged by the crowd blocking the way to Jesus. They will not be turned back. They are determined to get their friend to Christ. And they have a sacrificial love for their friend. Surely this act of love costs them greatly. It costs them time, it costs them their labor, and it costs them, no doubt, money. I'm sure they had to repair, pay for the repair of the roof that they tore off. Now, what was it that motivated this kind of action from these friends of the paralytic? Well, as we stated, no doubt it was love. They loved their friend. But it was loved mixed with faith. These men believed that Jesus would and could heal their friend. 
And they believed that what their friend needed above all was to come into contact with Jesus. And so we had this rush of commotion. No doubt the, the crowd had been stirred up because of the scene of these men carrying this paralytic. And I can only imagine that everyone's attention was turned to the commotion of the roof being torn off and a paralytic being lowered down with ropes. No doubt that would have got everybody's attention. And so you have all this commotion, and now you have this paralyzed man lying on his bed at the feet of Jesus. And I would imagine that a hush fell over the crowd as everyone waited with bated breath to see what would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? And this brings us to verse number five, where we read, And when Jesus saw their faith, and how could he not see their faith? Everybody could see their faith. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Brothers and sisters, I think here we see something so critically important for us to grasp. We learn here that above all, no matter what needs we might have, even being one as needy as this paralytic man, our greatest need is that our sins would be forgiven. Sinclair Ferguson commenting on this verse states, Here Mark unveils what lies at the heart of the gospel. Men need forgiveness. Jesus gives it. To the, to the degree to which you see your own need of forgiveness is the measure of how clearly you understand the gospel. And so friends, do you understand how much you need forgiveness? And do you understand that Jesus Christ is the only one who can forgive you? For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Now, there are many trials in this life. Things don't always go the way that we want them to go. Jesus once told one of his disciples that you'll be carried where you do not want to go. You will suffer in this life. Now, I don't mean to be morbid by this, but it seems to me that as I speak to people who are in the last years of their life and whose bodies are breaking down, and worse than that, they have experienced the loss of their close loved ones, almost to a person I've heard them say this, I don't understand why I'm still alive. I just want to go home. Dear ones, when we are suffering physically or even emotionally, it is, it is right for us to desire to be restored, to be delivered from that. But you do realize that even if your body is restored in this life, it is only temporary. We praise God, for example, when he extends the life of someone who has cancer, but they will get sick again and they will die. We think of Lazarus, who was raised from the dead physically. And how amazing to think of that. He was raised from the dead. But you do realize that Lazarus grew old and that he died again. And so, if his sins had not been forgiven, then what good was his being raised from the dead? He, he still must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if his sins had not been been forgiven, he would have faced the wrath of God against him for all eternity. But if his sins are forgiven, not only will he spend forever with Christ, he will receive a glorified body that will never die. Jesus said that everyone who believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. Remember the words of Christ. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. 
Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Your great need is not physical health or wealth or any other temporal blessing, but rather your great need is to be reconciled unto God, and that can only happen through having your sins forgiven by the only one who has the authority to forgive those sins. Notice also in this verse the tender way in which Christ addresses this man. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Sinners who are outside of Christ are enemies of God. It is only through the grace of forgiveness that Christ grants to us that we can be given the right to be called children of God and thus adopted into the very family of God. You see, when you believe in Christ, you receive the forgiveness of sins. But you also receive the righteousness of Christ. And thus, when God looks at you, he sees and relates to you as a son or daughter in whom he is well pleased. That is your great need. And so the question is, is that your condition this morning? If it is, then you should rejoice with all of your heart, for you are of all people most blessed. But if it is not, remember today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. Look to Christ, receive the forgiveness of your sins, and live. Now, before we move into Jesus' interaction with the scribes, I want to take a few minutes to address what it means when it says that Jesus saw their faith. What we learn from this statement in verse 5 is that God uses means in the salvation of his people. We should not read this verse and conclude that Jesus forgave a man on the basis of someone else's faith. What I mean by that is this. God saves people individually. In order for a person to be saved, they must personally lay hold of Christ by faith. In other words, I cannot believe in the place of someone else, and someone else cannot believe in my place. The individual sinner must be personally forgiven by Christ by individually and personally being brought into union with Christ through the instrument of their own faith, which was given to them personally by God as a gift. In other words, and, and so, no, the, the, the question, the answer is this, no, we cannot believe for someone else. And that includes our children, and that includes our lost loved ones. This verse does not teach salvation by proxy. But it does teach that God uses and blesses the faith of his people as a means whereby he brings his elect into the faith. And dear ones, this is meant to be a great encouragement to you from this passage. Every single person in this room that has been forgiven of their sins has been carried by the people of faith in some way or another to the feet of Jesus. Somebody in your life loved you, and their love for you was mixed with faith. They believed that God could save you, and thus they prayed for you, they witnessed to you, they preached the gospel to you, they gave you a gospel tract, and in some way or another, they carried you to Christ. Now, I've shared this story on more than one occasion, but I'll do so again. Most of you know that it was through the ministry of this church that God brought me into a saving relationship with his son. And so how did I get to the feet of Jesus to have him pronounce to me, Son, your sins are forgiven? Well, someone invited me to church. Someone else gave me a Bible. 
Someone else gave me good Christian literature. Someone else taught Sunday school. Another person preached a gospel from the pulpit. Others invited me over for lunch. Others made me feel welcome. And many, many others prayed that God would forgive my sins. And they did so in faith, believing that he would. And so, dear ones, don't you see? I was that paralytic, the helpless and hopeless sinner that could do nothing to save myself. And it was the saints here at EBC that carried me to the feet of Christ. And Christ saw your faith, and I was forgiven. And so thank you. Thank you for loving me and for being a people of faith. I am eternally grateful for that. And so church, I do encourage and exhort you. Understand that God uses means to accomplish his sovereignly decreed purpose to save his people from their sins. Therefore, do not grow weary in well-doing. Continue to pray for the lost, including your lost loved ones. Continue to invite them to church. Continue to share the gospel with them. Continue to speak often and much about the grace of God in your life. And do so believing that Christ sees your faith and that he is able and willing to save to the uttermost. Well, now we turn our attention to Jesus' confrontation with the unbelieving scribes. Verses 6 and 7 reads, Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Here in these verses, as we stated at the beginning of the sermon, we see the beginning of a hatred in the unbelieving in the unbelieving Jewish leaders, which will ultimately culminate in a plot to have Christ murdered. But here, their hostility is secret, or so they thought. They question not out loud, but in their hearts. Now, when we examine the content of their questioning, we see that the problem that these scribes had was not so much a theological problem, but it was an, it was an identification problem and a logic problem. Their statement was theologically accurate. It is true that only God can forgive sins. But there was a flaw in their logical formula. They reasoned in the following way. Only God can forgive sins. This man is not God, and therefore he is blaspheming. But of course, we know that their identification of this man named Jesus was wrong, and thus their logic was wrong. They should have reasoned this way. Only God can forgive sin. This man is God, therefore he has the authority to forgive sin. And so the question before you this morning is that very question. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Now as we move into verses 8 through 12, we really begin to see the main thrust of this passage. Here we see the great goal of Mark's gospel being put on display and that is to show that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And therefore, he is the king of the kingdom who has all authority to accomplish his mission. Let's read those verses once more, verses 8 through 12. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, 
so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Well, for the sake of time, I just want to mention from these last five verses of this passage that there are four main observations that we should see. The first observation in these verses is that the omniscience of Christ is an evidence of his divinity. If you would, turn, turn with me to Psalm 139. There it says, search, in verse 23 of Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. So here we see what? We see that the ability to search the hearts of men is attributed in Scripture to what? To who? To God and to God alone. Now, you don't have to turn here, but Revelation 2.23, we see Jesus assuming that to himself. In Revelation 2.23, it says, And all the churches will know that I, Jesus, am he who does what? Who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. And so Jesus very clearly assumes the divine prerogative and ability to search the hearts of men. And so that's what we have happening for us in our passage today. Jesus Christ, who is God, is searching the hearts of men. The second observation from this encounter with the scribes is that Jesus argues for his divine authority from the lesser to the greater. Now, on the surface, it seems like the lesser is the statement to forgive sin, and the greater is the statement that would tell this paralytic to rise, take up his bed and walk. Well, as far as what is visible to the eyes, it was harder to tell the paralytic to get up from his bed than it was to tell the man his sins were forgiven. And why is that so? Because we can't give someone a spiritual, uh, spiritual CAT scan to see if their sins really are forgiven. But when Jesus made the command to the paralytic to rise and to take up his bed and to, to go home, his authority would be brought into immediate confirmation or denial. But when Jesus tells the man to rise and he rises, the point Jesus is making to the scribes is that the lesser act of healing this man's physical condition points to the ultimate divine authority of Christ to forgive sins. He tells the scribes, I am performing this miracle, why? So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, I don't have time to go into this today, but the title that Christ uses for himself in this passage is the Son of Man. And this is actually the title that Christ uses about himself more than any other title in the, in the Gospel of Mark. And this title would have, would have meant something to the scribes. They would have understood that, that him taking that title on himself was that he was claiming to be divine. Because that title was a direct fulfillment of the prophecy given in the book of Daniel. And so they very clearly knew that Jesus was saying he was God. And he was claiming to be God. Third, in these verses, we see the miracle of Jesus healing the paralytic. Verse 11, Jesus speaking to the paralytic. He says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Brothers and sisters, may we never become numb 
to the compassion and to the authoritative power of Christ that is displayed in His miraculous works. These miraculous works of Christ recorded for us are intended to cause us to believe upon Christ to the salvation of our souls. That's why they're there. He did these miraculous works so that, so that we would believe that He was who He said He was. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The authority of Christ to heal this paralytic is meant to drive the truth home to your heart that Jesus has all authority to address your greatest need, which is the forgiveness of your sins. So call upon Him today. For all who call upon the name of Christ shall be saved. He is faithful and he is just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then lastly in verse 12, we see the misplaced amazement of the crowd. It says, And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed, or so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Well, on the surface, it sounds as if this crowd was comprised primarily of true believers in Christ who rendered proper worship in response to the miraculous working of Christ. That's what it seems like on the surface, right? They gave glory to God when they saw him heal this man. But if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. And notice verses 23 through 24. Here Jesus is pronouncing curses upon unrepentant cities. And in verses 23 through 24, he specifically addresses which city? You guessed it, Capernaum, which is where this miracle occurred. And he says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you, we just read of one of those mighty works, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The people of Capernaum rejoiced in, in this miracle of seeing a paralyzed man made able to walk. But it seems to me that the majority of them at least did not Rejoice in the greater miracle of seeing this man's sins forgiven. What do the angels rejoice in? They rejoice when one sinner repents. What did Jesus tell his disciples to rejoice in? That your names are written in heaven. And here we see something about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, as it's ushered in the first advent of Christ, was not ushered in as a physical kingdom. It was a spiritual, redemptive kingdom. And even the physical works and miracles of Christ were all meant to point to the reality that he came to save people from their sins. That is what is most important. And that's what we see shot throughout the whole of the Gospel of Mark. And so I close with the quote I mentioned from Sinclair Ferguson earlier in the sermon. He says, here in this passage... Mark has unveiled what lies at the heart of the gospel. Men need forgiveness. Jesus gives it. And so hear the words of Christ. But that you may know 
that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Dear ones, would you go to Christ today seeking the forgiveness that only he can give? Let's pray. Holy Father, we do thank you for your word that has reminded us today of our great need to be forgiven of our sins. And it has reminded us that you sent your son for that very purpose, so that all who would trust in him would receive the forgiveness of sins. Oh, Father, I do pray that you would make the preaching of your word effectual in the hearts of all who have or will hear, who have or will hear this message. Lord, would you please grant the grace of the forgiveness of sins to all of your people. And it is in Christ's authoritative name that I do pray. Amen.